70 million, the number of meals distributed since mid-March by New York City. This includes about 1 million meals a day distributed by the New York City Food Delivery Assistance Program to New Yorkers who cannot go out during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's part of a multi-pronged effort that involves several city agencies to ensure New Yorkers, millions of whom have been furloughed or laid off during the past few months, do not go hungry. Today, we dig into how the city was able to launch these programs so quickly and effectively with two fascinating conversations with leaders of the public and private sector teams that made it happen. First, the city's food czar, Catherine Garcia, who, by the way, is also the sanitation commissioner, and then Kaz Holloway, the former deputy mayor and now head of public enterprise at Uncork, the firm that almost overnight built an app that helped facilitate the food delivery. Stay tuned for this special two-part episode. And welcome to What's the Data Point from Gotham Gazette and Citizens Budget Commission. We're back with a fresh new episode here and doing it over Zoom. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Dulles from the CBC. And we are very pleased to be joined right now by Catherine Garcia, who has taken on all kinds of responsibility in the de Blasio administration over the last uh, bunch of years and is one of the mayor's longstanding, most uh, relied upon commissioners. Uh, Commissioner Garcia, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And so we want to uh, chat with you, of course, about this food operation that you've uh, helped uh, stand up and, and create, um, and also a little bit about what's going on at sanitation amid all the changes that have been going on and what's coming up next. But let's let's definitely start with, with the food side. But before we get into any of that, um, just uh, just tell listeners who aren't uh, as familiar with you just sort of who you are and and why the mayor relied on you to lead this food operation. So I guess I started in city government in 2006 and I was uh, doing water and wastewater and moved over to the Department of Sanitation in 2014 as the commissioner. Uh, and then through the course of the de Blasio administration. I've ended up wearing some other hats, uh, sort of developing the strategy to uh, eliminate childhood lead poisoning, uh, being interim chair of the New York Housing Authority, uh, and then putting together the food program during the time of COVID. Uh, but during all that time, I've also been the sanitation commissioner, which means making sure that we're trying to promote our environmental program as well as keep the city clean and healthy and plowed when it decides to snow. Yeah, I guess thankfully for you, we had a, a light a light winter uh, this winter, huh? Yeah, except for the threat in May. I was like, what's the threat in May? <laughs> right. Always uh, have to keep you on your toes. Yes. Can you say say a little bit more? I know you, know, you don't seem like someone I've seen in public who likes to sort of... Um, you know, toot your own horn, but what, what is it you think about you that has led the mayor to say, hey, we need you to run NYCHA for a little while. Hey, we need you to oversee the lead abatement program. Hey, we need you to do this emergency food program all while you're um, also running the complex uh, Department of Sanitation. Uh, I, think, I think he thinks it's because I'm effective at getting things done, but I'm really only a, as effective as my ability to put together really strong teams. Uh, and I think it's about being just very straightforward of what we can accomplish. And you know, having been in government for a long time, 
you become a little bit more knowledgeable about uh, everything from how do you put contracts in place to how do you stand up an operation and how do you communicate it? Uh, because you need to be able to be transparent with the public about what your objectives are. I think that that's a good transition point to, you know, how you came to wear the hat as foods are. And, you know, it was a rapidly kind of evolving situation on the health side, on the economic side, on the fiscal side. How did you develop a strategy to tackle this problem? Um, you know, first of all, I think we should give New Yorkers a sense of how many more people became food insecure during this time and how critical need that was. And then talk to us about how you took something that is such a, you know, a critical need and, uh, you know, use these levers of government to tackle the problem. Absolutely. And, and so even as we get into June and are thinking about phase two, uh, at the height of when we were climbing the mountain in late March, it became very clear that we needed to put together something that were about the basics of uh, maintaining, you know, health and life beyond healthcare, obviously. Uh, and that's like, do you have water? Do you have food? Do you have shelter? Um, because we had a massive crisis going on that was also made much worse by the economic crisis that we also encountered when you shut down an entire city, there is no economic activity. Uh, and so these two crises came together and, and what we have thought in the city of New York based on research is about 1.2 million New Yorkers were food insecure, which means they weren't clear about where they would get their next meal. Um, we believe today that that's doubled. Uh, this is driven both by the demand we have had for our programs, but also the filings for uh, SNAP benefits, which are sort of the post-food stamp uh, benefit that people have applied for. And we've seen that go up substantially. Uh, so we knew at the beginning or the middle of March that uh, we did not want to have like a third crisis of people being hungry. Uh, but the thing about this crisis that's very different than even if you look back at the Great Depression is some of the usual tools one might use for dealing with hunger, soup kitchens, congregate eating, uh, were something that was very, very dangerous, particularly for seniors. And so we had to very quickly transition to a delivery model at a scale that we have never thought of beating New Yorkers. Um, and so as uh, you said, we have served or um, distributed or delivered over 70 million meals. Uh, and that has been our gargantuan logistical uh, lift. And, but it really was about a whole bunch of different agencies coming together to make that happen. And so we have the Department of Sanitation, Department of Environmental Protection, the Parks Department, uh, the Department of Transportation, the Office of Emergency Management, uh, and then, of course, the Taxi and Limousine Commission, who we all work together to create a delivery system that creates hubs, and then the final delivery is done by taxi drivers, and then we've transitioned some to senior vendors. But what you're really seeing is where is the talent in the city of New York, and how can we leverage it to do something we've never done before? 
Can you say a little bit more about that? Um, you know, one thing I've been curious about is how much of this operation has been done by existing city employees and then how much has been, uh, you know, contracted out or, or just, you know, stood up, as you said, to, to work with um, taxi drivers, for hire vehicle drivers that are not city employees, but then became integral in this operation. Do you, do you have a sense of how much was in, you know, already existing city government and then how much was outside? Uh, so the majority of the people who man the food hubs, which is where we load the taxis, um, are city employees or National Guard. Uh, National Guard has been here assisting us on the labor front. Um, we are actually thinking about how this transition as city agencies want to reopen and want their staff back. <laughs> the anxiety that I have. Um, but we also didn't have city employees who usually do delivery services. And so that's where the taxi drivers really came in is to create a fleet of people who were not working at all. Um, and I would say, particularly in the beginning, very desperate for, for work. Um, and so making sure that we were leveraging, that's actually a resource in the city of New York. You know, they're already licensed, they've had been background checked, um, that we were able to, to really utilize. And then on terms of the preparation of the food, that is being done uh, primarily by large restaurants and catering halls that were also impacted severely by uh, the closures. Um, and so they prepare the food, bring them to the, the hubs. It is loaded in to the taxis and then the delivery occurs. Uh, and this has been facilitated by uh, the Uncork platform that I know you will talk about in more depth with, with Kaz Holloway so that we could track who, where it needed to go, how to deliver it, uh, how to pay them. You know, there's a lot of keeping track of who, who is your client, who is, who is the provider. And how did you decide where to site these distribution hubs for how many are there in the city and how did you decide how to kind of map out that network? So there are 11 in the city. Uh, and so part of it was really leveraging other city resources. We are using quite a few parks department recreational centers. Um, in addition, some EDC properties that they use, uh, that they had, uh, such as the Kingsbridge Armory and Basketball City in Lower Manhattan. But we were thinking about how do we, how do you find space? How do you line up a large number of cabs? How do you store food? Um, some of it we move very, very quickly if it's fresh food, if it's more shelf stable then you know, if there's more demand on a day, that's sort of our, our backup plan. And say a little bit about what some of the biggest challenges you've bumped into were. I mean, you've, you've kind of indicated some of that already, but as you, I assume are, are into a, a, you know, more of a smooth operation at this point after doing it for quite a while now. Um, what, what were some of the biggest challenges and bumps in the road here? So some of the biggest challenges were not knowing how big the demand was going to be uh, and being able to scale up fast enough to a million meals, which is where we seem to be uh, flattening out as relatively stable numbers. Um, and sort of that constant work on that mismatch and really trying to dial that in. Um, and then also on the taxi side, too many taxis one day, not enough the next day. Mm -hmm. And we use some 
more technology to sort of guarantee them more shifts, straighten out um, you know, their, their payments. One of the things I didn't know about taxis is uh, they usually get paid every day, even if they work for fleet operators. And they were unaccustomed to getting like a paycheck after after you do the work you know you don't usually get paid every day i'm sure you don't get paid every day and uh and then when that started happening they seemed to believe in the program a little bit more uh but i think the challenge was also just dealing with the the scale of the crisis at the moment of the crisis and the huge need that just went flying through the roof and keeping up with that and trying to make sure we're like, we had enough food, we had uh, food that was religiously appropriate uh, and being able to make that sort of sync together. So how are you thinking about this now? I mean, you've already mentioned that, you know, there are city employees who were repurposed who will now be kind of going back to their, um, their duties. Um, and presumably as the economy opens up, people will be going, some people will be going back to work. Um, and so, you know, demand for the program should decline. How are you thinking about that in the coming weeks as we approach phase two and then phase three of reopening the city? This is a really great question. And we have been definitely working on options of how this moves forward. Sort of how do we dial it back as people are free to go out? as it's safer to move around? Um, and then should we have a challenge in the fall, uh, how do we ramp back up uh, to make it really agile? Um, for the other piece of what we have been doing for those who have been able to go out during the pandemic is obviously the Department of Education's grab and go sites. Those will continue through the summer um, to make it so that there is food available for those who are food insecure, children and adults. Um, but we also think that we're beginning to see people get their unemployment checks, get their uh, SNAP benefits, that sort of, we're a little stuck, as I think many people know, when, and, and I do feel bad actually for the State Department of Labor having to manage that many new applications. Uh, but I, we're starting to see that that actually, money is getting into people's hands. And I think that they, are out now more comfortable, able to shop uh, as we get to phase two. So is it is it basically that things have flattened out at delivering about a million meals a day and having about 500,000 picked up at the hundreds of, of DOE sites? Yeah, so that is where we have been for about the last week and a half. Yeah. And it's what we see projected out um, over the next two weeks. Uh, but we were much higher at the end of May. Okay. And so we'll see whether or not, like the, the last week of May, we were probably up 30% higher than we are now. Um, when, you, when, when we say a million deliveries a day, so is that a million meals delivered a day, is that three meals, you know, every, every place that you're, you're delivering to is basically a drop off of three meals? Are you dropping off? Go ahead. So uh, no, actually it is a drop off of nine meals. Right. Okay. It is three days of meals uh, for one person, three meals a day. Uh -huh. And so, so does that, so if it's nine meals a day, so, so basically you're doing somewhere around a hundred thousand drop-offs a day to do a million meals a day or? 
No, it just it's a third. It's a third of a million. It's about three hundred thousand. Okay. And so, it, it, for that system, do you have do you do you have a sense of the breakdown within who's getting those deliveries? Is that almost you know is that largely a senior population, and and then also you know people with mobility issues or you know most at risk of um, you know catching the virus and, and therefore really needing to be at home. Do you have a, a sense of the breakdown? About two thirds seem to be people over 60. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't ask for identification, but right. they say that they are over 60. Um, some are in um, multi-generational homes, but we also ask them to certify if they're not elderly, uh, that they have an underlying condition or some other reason why they can't get private delivery and no one can go out for them. Uh, We also have a new client base in terms of those who are newly COVID positive, who are being asked to quarantine by the test and trace uh, and are being told that they are not to leave their house Mm -hmm. for at least two weeks. Uh, So we are doing some delivery to that population as well. Uh, if they need it due to the fact that they can't afford private delivery. Interesting. Anything else on food, Maria, before we, we, no, you know, I really want to say kudos. This is an example of a program that got launched very quickly, very effectively serving a million people a day. I mean, great work. I, I guess one more on me, uh, for me, before we do go to um, sanitation stuff in terms of looking ahead, um, other than the sort of um, question about where the personnel would be if there's a need to ramp back up further, um, and hopefully everybody is hopeful that there won't be that need. Um, but there, are there any changes to these, you know, the food program that you'd look to make if there ever was a need for like, you know, for doing this again or a need to ramp up again? Is it, you know, there's been questions around the nutrition of the meals mm-hmm. or, you know, diff- what, are there some different things where, you know, again, in a, in a perfect world, you'd have more planning time that you do, differently right in a perfect world and if hopefully do not have to do this again but also uh, more choice it's really hard to manage but uh, I think that it's really important to try and figure out how to meet the demands of uh, the public to make well one really to make sure that they eat the food but uh, how to also match up like do you just want a pantry box and cook for yourself or are you so infirm that you couldn't stand up to cook? Like you really need a prepared meal. Um, And I think that's about really understanding the client base more in depth uh, as we move forward. Um, But we just, at the scale we were moving, we did not have the ability to be as um, able to agilely meet every single need that people had. So we tried to focus on uh, the need for religiously appropriate meals. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's talk a little sanitation. Maria, go ahead. All right. So as we said, you undertook this, you know, massive new job um, while you still had your day job as sanitation commissioner, which is one of the core city services. So how has DASNY been, uh, DSNY been um, impacted by COVID? And how have you changed your operations during this time? It's, I think uh, everyone now realizes that sanitation is really, really essential when you are stuck at home. Mm -hmm. Uh, And 
we were impacted pretty heavily by COVID in terms of uh, we've had a 630 people who were positive for COVID. We have had uh, 14 deaths, seven with documentation that they were COVID positive, and seven with, uh, we are presuming because many of them passed away when there weren't tests available. And so that has been very hard on the agency, but even when we were, we had 20, over 20% of the sanitation workers sick, uh, we were able to basically go out and, and really ensure that the city was clean by getting the garbage. We had some delays, um, but week on week, we were basically on time. Uh, and that's really a testament to people who are willing to come in and work as hard as, as, hard as, they, as they did. Um, we did a couple of things to try and be protective of sanitation workers. Uh, we started doing cleaning on every shift of the trucks and all the touch surfaces. Um, we moved our shift uh, to start at 5 a.m., which is very painful when I go to talk to them at roll call. Uh, but you know, to meet, keep them out of the public as much as possible. Um, one of the things that we do at sanitation in normal times is say I have people out who are, you know, absent in Queens, but there's extra people in Manhattan and we'll move you to balance the force to make sure we have enough people. That obviously was not going to be a good idea in the age of COVID. So we did, we did, did not, we stopped moving people between districts. Um, so they could live in their little pod of their district home. Um, and we had masks available to them from the beginning. Uh, obviously, they always wear gloves. Uh, nobody picks up garbage without gloves. Uh, though we did not push it as much as we did once the guidance changed. And then we're able to, you know, and we continue to provide masks to this day to make sure that uh, they are protected as they're doing their work. And some other like real social distancing at the garages really discouraging them from uh, hanging out. Though I have to say that they, they're a very social group. I would go out and talk about social distancing and then as soon as I stopped talking, they clumped together again. I was like, no, no, put your arms out, no touching. <laughs> like, um, but you know, they really, really stepped up during this time to keep everything going. Uh, and you know, it touched all ranks within the organization um, and different titles. Uh, you know, from sanitation worker, auto mechanics were here. Um, and so I think that that really made a difference for the city in terms of being able to keep it clean, keep it moving. Um, and you know, there, there were strange things in the data. Around. Yeah, I was just, we were just about to ask about that. What, what, were some of the, what were some of the shifts and the trends and the new, new findings uh, thus far during this, this different time we're in? So initially, when everything closed and on a normal day, the private sector collects about half of New York City's waste and I collect the other half from the residences. I assumed that all that private sector waste would move to the residential side. You know, restaurants are closed, you're cooking. Um, but initially that didn't happen. And it was pretty flat in the end of March and then dropped in April and then came back up strongly in May. So very strange pattern, but- um, Is there a working theory about why that is? 
Well, I think there, there are two working theories. One uh, is that there were a lot of people who were not in the city. Yeah. But by the, there's one week in April where it's completely every borough is down. Um, uh, and that people were also, I think, being very frugal with their food, particularly during the height of that, like where they might have let their leftovers they meant to take for lunch go bad because they forgot them. They were home all the time, so things got eaten. Um, right, and there's and, probably a good bit of hesitancy at different points about going to this, the store, you know, and some of the lines that formed. Yeah, so I think that people were being cautious about going out and so therefore making sure that they had uh, food in the house and that they could cook for themselves. I think they weren't even willing to do takeout at the beginning there. Um, and, you know, so we saw a real change. And then I think as the weather started to get better, they started to also then, if they were still home, clean out everything. <laughs> like, oh, the garage that I haven't been in mm. for years. We're going to go clean that whole thing out. Um, the, I feel like the project started as people were still at home, but um, maybe uh, a little bit less afraid than they had been. Uh, the one thing I'll say is that metal, glass, and plastic has been up consistently by a lot. So, um, and, that, and that continues to the, the to this day. And do we have a a theory behind that? We think that it is glass. Mm -hmm. um, because wine bottles, <laughs> wine, wine, and bottles. wine and liquor. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, because we're not having a capacity challenge on the truck, so it's not a cubic yard issue, it's a weight. And glass is significantly heavier than most of the rest of that waste stream. Interesting trends. So, you know, in addition to the health crisis and the food crisis we talked about, you know, we're also in this fiscal crisis. Um, so, you know, how have you approached finding savings at sanitation department um, as part of this PEG program and you know how are you using that lens to kind of look at any cuts that may be needed going forward to balance the budget all right now the the budget is as I think you probably know is very very bad um, very hard to have revenue when you don't have an economy um, we looked at literally every program uh, that we had and started to make adjustments back at the beginning of May to try and save uh, actually really cash um, for the city uh, as we moved through this. Um, so we have reduced many of the programs that, you know, I feel very strongly about uh, and back just to like a very, very core of um, collection of refuse and recyclables and some cleaning, but much of our cleaning was cut. Uh, you know, much of our uh, household hazardous waste programs were cut. Our, you know, the, obviously the big one was the organics program was cut. Um, but, you know, we took, we took a very um, aggressive approach with OMB about what what we would take down uh, to sort of slim us to the slimmest we could be uh, in the fact that there 
is really no funding available for anything outside of very basic services. And, you know, I, I am concerned about where that puts us long term in terms of the environmental agenda, because we will definitely lose traction. And, and I think long term, it's something we need to be really focused on. Uh, but at this particular moment, in the middle of COVID and an economic crisis, we tried to make sure that we were being as efficient as possible. I, mean, I think one of the challenges we've had uh, in terms of reducing overtime is, you know, we are staffed with an assumption that most people aren't sick. And when you have really high numbers of people who are sick and you still have to man that truck for that route for that day, it's going to cost you on overtime. And, you know, we are, we are still uh, seeing some of that, but it is so much better than it was. Um, so our sick is still a little bit higher than it's traditionally at this point, but it, it, we are way better than uh, sort of, I think the second week of April was our worst week. So, I mean, to stick on this for a second, you know, I think in times of crisis like this, it's absolutely appropriate to lean on overtime to help manage through the situation. And I, I was struck earlier about, about how you said that you can actually transfer capacity between boroughs if needed um, as just a regular way of doing business. I mean, have you had conversation? And I think that's that's unique among other agencies and other uniformed agencies where that's not really, you know, that can't really happen through managerial discretion. Um, you know, are there aspects of the operation um, where you can have conversations with labor that would help perhaps, uh, you know, force, you know, gain some efficiencies and maybe forestall layoffs um, if and when this does get worse? Because there are still significant risks out there. And as you said, you've already had to sacrifice some, some of the more innovative programs like organic collection. Um, and so the question, you know, and the worry going forward is, you know, how, you know, how much do we cut and when do we get to the bone? Um, and one thing CBC has advocated is to say, okay, let's, you know, let's collaborate with labor. And that can look, you know, that can take many forms, but one of them is to work through some of these, you know, work rules and provisions and contracts that would allow you as a commissioner to have more discretion. Um, are those those kind of conversations? Do you have things like that that you'd like to 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 work on or see addressed? Um, I realize this puts you a little bit on the spot and the whole mm -hmm. let's not negotiate in public, but I think you know it's helpful for people to understand that you know even though you are the the master sort of of the sanitation world, you're not all powerful because you are limited in in how you can allocate resources and what you can do because of these labor contracts. Right now, we have a very, very complicated labor contract, uh, but I have to say that uh, Local 831 uh, has worked very closely with us throughout um, the pandemic uh, in terms of figuring out what would work for people so that they wouldn't be scared to come to work. Uh, and you know, we will continue during this crisis to work with them on finding efficiencies and figuring out how to make sure their members are still happy, but uh, that the city can keep moving forward. Uh, you know, I had a long conversation with Harry Nascoli yesterday about a wide range of issues. Um, and you know, I think that they wanna come to the table and be creative with the administration moving forward. Uh, I don't think anyone wants to see layoffs, but 
they can look at the numbers and do the math and know that that's definitely a possibility on the table. Right. And we should also say that the sanitation union is one union through the city's history that has actually been willing to kind of do these innovative programs, whether it's gain sharing or, you know, differentials for meeting certain productivity targets. So there's a track record there. Yeah, no, they they like to make the payroll as complicated as possible. <laughs> um, I guess I was just I was going to ask uh, Maria kind of named a couple of things. But when you say be creative, you know, without obviously divulging, you know, the, the private conversation with the head of the union, um, you know, just when you think about being creative, uh, what are one or two, just so people have a sense of like what that could mean, you know, what are one or two of the buckets under, under that category? So this gets very in the sanitation weeds of, uh -huh. you know, how do you set up routes? How do you, you know, what's uh -huh. the dump on shift end up looking like? Uh, how do you transfer people around? Right. Uh, how do you use, you know, how does, how does all of that flow through? Um, but it would require a much longer conversation on how all gotcha. of that works in the sanitation world. All right. So we want to let you go, Catherine Garcia. We appreciate the time. I have one more question on about you, Maria, if you want to. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess I wanted to pick up just on the organics and just get a little more of your sense of how you're thinking about things with the future of that program. Um, you know, just are there different, you know, ways that you're thinking about it? Are there different options you consider on the table? There's obviously the city council bill that would, you know, mandate certain drop-off sites. Um, you know, how are you thinking about the future of, of trying to do the organics recycling? Uh, so we are having sort of in-depth thoughts about it. Uh, what I would say is, you know, we're trying to make sure we are being supportive of the nonprofits who we have come to rely on and, are working on submitting sort of grant applications uh, to continue uh, giving them support. Obviously, we don't have any funding, but there's some USDA funding out there. Uh, we're also thinking about how do you really make this uh, a mandatory program? Um, we would need to do that in partnership with the city council. Uh, but when you look forward, it seems to me that what we have learned is we have some real true believers um, I being among them, it's been mm -hmm. horrifying to have to put food into my garbage, uh, but it's just, it makes it not clean anymore. But um, uh, there were people who found it, who, who were not going to do it if, unless they were told that they had to do it. Um, and that is, you know, they're, they're not all going to embrace it. Uh, but there, there is, I think, a way to step through this where we start sort of with um, uh, with yard waste and then move like to food into mandatory steps like that uh, and think about how we are really using sort of our equipment. So the dual bin trucks so that you don't have to extend the route uh, and that they can collect on either side for refuse and for organics and um, making that work more effectively. Uh, but we, we know that we, this will we are being optimistic that this can be a really good planning year um, so that we don't get depressed. <laughs> with, the, with, the, with the start of phase two coming up and the mayor's announcements about using sidewalk space for restaurants and cafes and such, just one or two things top of mind for you in terms of any, any adjustments or challenges that will, will mean? Yeah, is, for, uh, for us, it's, it's, we don't anticipate there being any challenges. They, you know, they still have to make sure things are clean, which I assume they would be motivated to do. 
Um, but besides sort of dealing with alternate side of the street parking, which obviously has been suspended for a long time, working around that, uh, we don't anticipate there being significant issues for uh, the Department of Sanitation. But we will, we will be agile. Uh, we will be watching. All right, well, anything else you wanted to throw in there, Maria? Well, I was going to say, you know, that's CBC supports the goal of the organic program, but has had some concerns about just the efficiency of it. And I think that's great and well said about how, you know, you could, it can become, this could be a planning year to make it more cost effective um, when it comes back online. And maybe that means re revisioning, um, rethinking um, how some of the pickup is done, just like you mentioned. Um, I just want to touch on one last thing that has been sort of a really great accomplishment during your tenure, which is the establishment of commercial waste zones. So just give us an update on, you know, what the, um, the status is on that and when you foresee that um, now launching. Right. Our plan had been more or less to release the RFP uh, in May, pre-COVID. Uh, the earliest it will get released is probably late fall, in part because we don't actually know where the industry is at this moment, um, or who will come back, who will be unable to come back. Uh, some of that's driven by the commercial sector. Hard to know how many, what you're bidding on if you don't know how many customers you have. Uh, so we are definitely watching it and communicating with folks. We're very anxious to get it into into place, but I also don't want to do it prematurely where people will propose something that is not the landscape that will be true six or 18 months after they propose. Well, Catherine Garcia has been leading the city's emergency food effort and maintaining her work at the Department of Sanitation as the commissioner there uh, throughout. Uh, and thank you so much for the time. Thank you. Folks should stay tuned for Cass Holloway. Welcome to the second part of our episode. We just spoke to the city's food czar about the emergency delivery program, and now we're going to hear about it from another angle. The Wall Street Journal asked the question, how did the city, not generally known for its nimble response, managed to launch its gargantuan free food programs in a matter of days. Enter our guest, Kaz Holloway, and a company you may have not heard of, but that stepped up in a big way. Kaz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And uh, I'm a big fan of CBC, as I think you know. Yes, <laughs> we're big fans of yours. <laughs> so before we jump in, tell people a little bit about yourself and about Uncork. Sure. Uh, I have been at Uncork for about a year. Let me come back to that. Before that, I was at Bloomberg LP uh, for about five years, and I ran a group called Global Technical Operations. And before that, I worked in the Bloomberg administration for eight years. Um, the last two and a half, I was deputy mayor for operations. Before that, I was the commissioner of the Department of Environmental Protection, uh, one of the, my probably my favorite job ever. And I started my career in the mid-90s in the Parks Department working for Henry Stern. So I've spent more than half my career in public service uh, in the city of New York, and I love it. Let me come back to Uncork. So Uncork is a software company that is a, uh, an application development platform, but you develop the applications without having to write code. And the way that you do this is through a series of 
drag and drop interfaces um, and what we call configurations. And uh, in order to, I think the best way to explain it that really resonates with me is it enables people like me who understand how to deliver services or get outcomes and the steps that are required um, to actually build software thinking in those terms. Um, and to you still work very closely with software engineers, but the ability for people who really actually do the work to build the software and the speed with which we can adapt the software to meet needs is just um, one of the things that I think really makes it a game changer in in the public sector. And it actually started in financial services and insurance. And I can tell you more about that as we go. I imagine also that um, the ease of that also allows you to have a clearer conversation with government about what exactly the goals are and what they need without getting mired in a lot of the technical speak about how you build out a system. Exactly. And the way that um, what you really don't, what goes away with Uncork is the translation exercise where you're trying to translate the outcome, what you're trying to do with the software into coding terms. Um, and it is a, it's something that uh, has been really, it's been a great year. It's been really fun. Um, it's been intense and it has been good to be able to help the city of New York. We're also in Washington DC and other places um, in this time where, you know, uh, every crisis is different, but I've certainly had my own experience and it's just great to be able to help. So how did Uncork work with the city to deliver this quick and effective response? So Uncork is a software platform or what's called a software as a service. And when I came to Uncork, I started working, uh, going and, and basically explaining what the platform could do and doing what are called proofs of concept for um, agencies in New York City, but also other cities um, and other industries as well. We're also in the healthcare industry. And we actually had gone through and done a number of those, what are called POCs with um, in this, both in the city of New York and other places. And so we were a known entity internally. Um, and we were going, as I'm sure you know, um, in when it comes to government, it's all about how do you um, there's, it's very, what you're buying is actually important is how you're buying it. And so, you know, we were able to go through the process over a series of months to get on, um, one of the reseller contracts that the city has for, you know, platforms like ours. And so by the time COVID came, we were known internally. Um, and so when the call came to, um, to see if we could deliver on this application for food delivery, which you noted the article as about, so I won't tell that story again, but um, we were able to, we were able to respond. We were in a position to do, um, to step up. So, I mean, many uh, have probably not read this article, but it's the story sort of goes that you got a, a call from the commissioner, do it Jessica Tish. And she said, well, can you get this done over the weekend, essentially? Yes. Okay. So um, uh, she did. She did call and ask if we could get that done over over the weekend. And let me just explain a little bit about what it is. Um, 
the application, which is called the Get Food Pro for the Get Food program, basically enables um, residents of the city to fill out a simple survey um, and see if they qualify. If they qualify, then they're able to order place an order for food. They can order kosher, halal. They can order regular stand, what's called standard. You talk to Catherine, so I'm sure she went through some of this. Then those orders get um, batched and sent to a hub based on its geographic proximity to where the person lives. Uh, and then there's a whole other side of the application that enables TLC drivers to sign up to cover shifts to drive and deliver meals. And of course, then there's a whole administrative backend that enables you to basically orchestrate all of this. Those are the three pieces that, that we were able to build over that weekend. And um, as uh, we went live on a Monday, I think we, the, they actually delivered 15 meals on a Tuesday and Catherine told you where we are, where the city is now. Um, you know, it's hundreds of thousands of meals a day. And the, one of the cool things about Uncork is that it was actually built to scale up like that. So um, does that help? No, it does help. I think it's very interesting and helpful to kind of understand. And, you know, it strikes me that for a long time, we've been talking about kind of improving customer service and government and having easy applications like this, if you will, to help connect people with services. And I think it's amazing that this was just developed so quickly and was able to become so effective and scale up to meet exactly the need that was needed in the crisis. So that's awesome. Um, how did your prior experience as the deputy mayor, right? And you, I think, were there when Hurricane Sandy happened. You know, how did you, did you, you must have brought experience, your press experience to bear on this, um, this crisis and how you approach this problem with your team. Well, let me take a step back. One of the reasons that I actually went to Uncork is because I saw um, in the platform really the ability to to help build software to deliver services for the public um, fast, nimbly, at scale uh, for systems that exist, new systems, but also particularly in this circumstance, in a crisis, when you need to stand up things very quickly and you need to be able to modify and adapt them. And we didn't have that in Sandy. And it actually is something that stuck with me as, you know, one of those things. There's a, there's a list of things that I have in my mind about, you know, man, I, I wish that had gone differently. Uh, and that is one of them. You know, it took us months to get basically a management system in place in order to do the transition from FEMA to HUD uh, in terms of the, the different spending pools um, that you have. And those two programs are not were not particularly well connected at the federal level. And I just found it incredibly frustrating. Um, and when I was introduced to Uncork, the first thing I thought of was, wow, you know, if we had had this, it would have taken a week. And um, that was the theory anyway. So it was, it was a very gratifying to be able to basically take that hypothesis and then have the opportunity to, to prove it out, which we were able to do. Um, and now in terms of your question about you know, like the experience of deputy mayor, I, I would say, as I said, every crisis is different. Um, the team, the, and you talked to Catherine, I mean, the team that's running the food program is just a, 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 an amazing team. I've had the opportunity to be able to be one of the people you know, working alongside them 
Um, and the technology is super important, but it's only one piece of, a, of, of an operation that involves thousands of people and supply chains of food. And, you know, um, it's an important piece, but it's just one piece. Um, but it's, so every crisis is different, but I think that the, um, you know, knowing that speed was paramount and having the experience of what a crisis uh, is like when it impacts lots of people, um, you know, it's helpful, right? It's helpful um, because it helps you to maybe fill in some of the blanks in terms of what would be needed um, at least on day one, uh, because you're not going to have a ton of time to sit down and go through requirements, if that makes sense. Um, you know, do you think this is now opening the door in a big way? So, you know, the program may continue, you know, in some, the emergency program will continue in some form. Um, but government has had to think about how to provide services remotely and digitally in some cases, and it's kind of accelerated this, this push in e-government. Um, what do you, what do you see thinking about this, thinking about this experience, thinking about your prior experiences, looking forward, what do you see changing in the public sector in terms of technology and digital services? It's interesting. I think if you, um, if you look back at, I joined the Bloomberg administration in 2006 and, um, it, it was right at the fifth anniversary of 9-11. And if you remember, um, Homeland Security funding was basically at its peak. Um, hundreds of millions of dollars in these Homeland Security grants were, were being given out. And that was, the, of, that was what came out of that event, right? Um, that there was this whole new Department of Homeland Security and funding and, you know, and it addressed what was an obvious gap. Um, what is the gap coming out of, uh, if you look at Sandy, you know, the, the plan that the city put out to make cities more resilient that I think has become a blueprint for cities around the world. That was a gap, right? Um, people knew about it, but hadn't thought about it holistically uh, for whatever reason. I think the gap that is exposed here, one at least, um, there are many, you know, in terms of socioeconomic and the way people have been impacted, but from a, the way services are delivered, I think you're going to see the, you know, basically the move toward what I think of as a, a virtual imperative in the way services are delivered, that it's not going to be just a nice to have for critical services, for there to be essentially a digital option for services. Um, uh, if you look at a licensing process that, you know, that requires people to go and stand with hundreds of other people and wait for something. Well, I, those are still going to exist. The, the, the way to, to getting services in that way is still going to be something that exists. It's not all going to go away. It's just no longer going to be okay for there not to be a digital alternative, a virtual alternative. And I think um, that creates a lot of opportunity for something that I know is near and dear to you, uh, opportunity for um, efficiency and savings. I think that ultimately when you stand up these systems uh, if you do it right, you, in terms of the processing time and cost of, you know, what all of the providing these services requires, uh, I think there's big opportunity there. So I have been thinking about that a lot, obviously. Um, uh, and I think that's, you know, one of the things. 
Yeah, I think you're right about that. And I continue to think about that as I try to, you know, continue remote instruction with my daughter in kindergarten and, um, you know, got to, took the survey from the DOE about what my preferences were for the fall. And it became clear that some level of remote instruction is going to continue. Yep. And I'm not quite sure what that means for public education, but I think the, the point of view and, you know, how we, how the city does this and what citizen expectations are, are going to continue to evolve um, pretty, pretty quickly and maybe drastically. So you hit on one of my favorite topics, efficiency. And since you were the deputy mayor for operations in an administration that did pegs continually and was really driven by this culture of follow the data, I have to ask you about, um, about that. So, you know, CBC has pointed out that not much has done. It has Mike been done Bloomberg in- was a great mayor. <laughs> You know, not much has been done recently about that. But, you know, part of the thing that I say is, um, you know, a lot of the kind of things that we would talk about are things that are not necessarily so sexy, but are important to do, right? Like, they're not going to give you splashy headlines. They're important to do. And, you know, can you talk about some of the things that you did during your time? And one of my favorite examples that I still talk about are some of the changes you made to fleet and how the city did fleet services with garages. Can you give some examples like that for people? And can you tell us, I mean, talk more generally about how you thought about that and approached that and what some of those lessons are that can be applied today? So um, it is, first of all, thank you. And by the way, the fact that you, the, the, that fleet example uh, sticks with you really uh, is uh, terrific. Uh, not many people talk to me about that. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, it just so, reveals how geeky I am, but I'm, I'm yeah. cool with it. I'm cool with it. So uh, I think that, first of all, necessity um, is still, you know, pegs are born of necessity, really. But, but I think in the same way that you see now, look, um, whatever was happening before COVID, um, before this crisis, now there has to be dr- drastic and dramatic um, change in terms of uh, the budget picture and what's going to happen, um, at least in the short to medium term, maybe longer. Um, and so, you know, those 13 pegs, I'll tell you, like you don't, uh, they're not fun. Um, and, but, the, uh, you know, after the financial crisis, that's what was required. And that really carried through until the end of the administration. That was, that was five years, you know. Um, and so the way that you um, the way that we thought about it was uh, obviously, you know, you know this, you're, you know, because you're on the inside. First, you go to OMB, and then every agency is, you know, required to do certain things. Um, and uh, they always come back with something, and some agencies, you know, put real stuff on the table, and some don't. And then you, you know, kind of that's like the first level. But when you're in a situation where you actually really dramatically have to cut, you have to start thinking differently about. Um, how do you, what services are being delivered and how can they be made uh, more efficient or, um, or, or brought together? The fleet one is a good example. You know, that came out of, uh, you had, I don't know, 30 agencies that had fleets and, you know, a fleet opera, every fleet operation requires a certain kind of setup um, and certain kind of workers and, you know, certain facilities. Um, but it turns out that there are two agencies that do it really, really well. Uh, because they do it at scale 
and that's the Department of Sanitation and the police department. And so one of the things that we did, and you know, Keith Kerman, who was still a part of the de Blasio administration, and I think um, one of the great unsung heroes of city government, um, although he did recently win an award, so maybe he's been sung about a little bit, um, uh, but he, you know, had the vision um, to, uh, to work uh, on bringing, you know, basically collapsing all of those fleet operations into those two agencies and doing it in a way that was collaborative because you could also try to do it and fight your way through it and it would never happen because of the, because of unions and, um, and, and just, you know, the people who run the system know it better than you ever are going to. <laughs> so, you know, they can wait you out. Uh, so I think it's one of those great examples of a collaborative effort. Another example was actually real estate. Um, we went through and did a comprehensive look at the city's footprint and we put together a list of, you know, about 144 different real estate transactions, including the sale of buildings, collapsing of space, um, moving to some other locations, um, that generated, uh, I don't remember the numbers, but we, I'm sure there's a press release on it, but it's another one of those things that, you know, it now it excited me, but it's certainly not something that is like exciting. Right. Um, uh, but huge opportunity. And so I think, you know, thinking about, um, those kinds of operations that, that really cut horizontally across all agencies, uh, you know, is, is where you would, you would look certainly if you were going to go beyond the traditional, like, okay, how many heads can I cut out of this, this part of this group? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the other important thing to pick up on what you said is that, you know, you got to constantly monitor these things, right? Like you constantly have to like be looking at your office space and how it's being used and trying to better utilize the space. And to bring it back to the fleet example, I mean, another part of that, of course, is, and, you know, CBC calls these the tough choices because they're not necessarily easy to do and you can't do them overnight because it involves things like, you know, tackling agency culture and doing staff cross-training and setting up the systems that allow that to happen. So, you know, you got to sort of have the vision and then execute towards this more efficient imperative. Um, the final thing I'd like to just underscore from what you said is that, you know, the Great Recession happened in 08. Um, and at the end of the Bloomberg administration in 2014, there were still pegs going on to manage the aftermath of that. And that was an economic situation in a fiscal crisis that is not as dire as the one we have now. And so, you know, the last note in this episode is really that this is going to be a crisis that is going to require a sustained effort um, looking at the budget and getting those efficiencies and cutting expenditures over several years. And so we're still in for, <coughs> excuse me, the long haul on this. Um, with that, Kaz, I want to thank you. I think this was be very informative for the audience. Um, and listeners, stay tuned because our next episode will be looking at the adopted budget. Thank you very much, Kaz. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.